hear heaven's voices sing. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have heard heaven's voices right now as we sung for that song. But one thing we are for sure assured of in the scriptures, whenever we sing, whenever we gather in the name of Christ and we sing his praises, we actually enter the realm, the spiritual realm where heaven sings, the angels sing. We may not hear them through our voices, but by faith we believe that we're entering into a higher throne, into a sanctuary. That's why we love the song. We've introduced it recently to our congregation. If you still feel like you don't know it, I um, encourage you to continue to meditate on the words of the song. We encourage you to listen to it on YouTube as you go home, and we hope that they'll become a part of our, our congregation's repertoire of singing because we believe that every time we gather in this place, there is a higher throne, and we come into that presence even when we don't have physical eyes to see it, we come into that presence believing that Christ is indeed on the throne. Friends, also this morning we want to remind you, and I forgot to mention to you, but we are collecting um, offerings for Texans missionaries, Texas missions, and Mary Hill Davis, we have an envelope out in the atrium, and also a prayer guide encouraging you to pray for Texas missionaries and, and helping you to know how to pray for them. Uh, encourage you to pick these on your way out. This morning... We turn our hearts again to the Word of God and specifically to the way God reveals Himself to us in the book of Daniel. Two weeks ago, we began this new series on the book of Daniel, a series we've entitled The Supremacy of God. The Supremacy of God. Friends, when you hear that word, that phrase, that title, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What is it? The Supremacy of God. It should, at the very least, say something about the fact that God is supreme. That God is above all things, over all things. He's more powerful, more wise. His glory is greater than we can imagine. He is the everlasting God. He's greater than anything we can think of. God is supreme. Well, this morning we will see how the book of Daniel presents to us why and how is it that God is supreme? Why is it that we Christians and peoples of all nations and tribes and languages should hear this truth that God is a supreme God? What's a wonderful story in chapter 2. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 770, 770. Chapter 2 is a wonderful story of the God who reveals his kingdom. The God who reveals his kingdom. That's why he is supreme, because God reveals to us his kingdom. Let's hear God's word to us this morning. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. 
But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants a dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the, th- the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with, with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's official, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king and once, at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown the king what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you are lying there, O king, 
your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than all the living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of gold, of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut off, cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what it will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. 
He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's ask God for his wisdom to be revealed to us once again as we listen to his word. Let's go and pray. Father, we thank you that you are the revealer of mysteries. And we thank you that you have revealed to us that you are going to bring about your kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Oh Lord, we pray that even now as we hear about this, as we hear about your revelation, we pray that you would make this known to us in fresh ways and help us apply it through the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen. In some ways, dear friends, chapter 2 is an incredible picture of the helplessness of Babylon's spiritual resources. In some way, chapter 2 is an incredible picture of the helplessness of Babylon's spiritual resources, even though Babylon was a superpower of the world at that time. And at a very basic level, chapter 2 tells us that God's heavenly kingdom is coming to replace not just Babylon, but all human kingdoms. That's why chapter 2 is also a story of how to understand human history from a, world's, from a bird's eye view. Now, to understand the impact of the promise of chapter 2, it may help us to remember that Israel is in exile. Remember the picture? Their kingdom, Israel's kingdom, or Judah's kingdom, to be more precise, has been crushed by the Babylonians. Last week, we considered how easy it is for us to think that when things go hard, when tragedies hit our lives, it's easy for us to conclude that God might be absent. But he's not. And last week, we saw how God is present how God is present in Babylon by presenting his sovereign faithfulness. That God is present in Babylon by the trust his servants had in him. That God is present in Babylon by the reversal of roles. But now in chapter 2, the supremacy of God is shown not only by his presence in Babylon, but the supremacy of God is shown in God's initiative to reveal himself. Guess to who? Not to Daniel. Daniel is just an instrument. To reveal himself and have a message, a personal message, to the very king of the empire that crushed Israel. God takes the initiative to reveal himself to the king of Babylon. And what does he reveal to the king of Babylon? God reveals to the king of Babylon God's coming kingdom. And this story in chapter 2 has two major emphases. Two points. For those of you who like three-point sermons, um, we'll get a deal, a discount today. You only get two, ser- two points. Two points. The God who reveals. That's the first point. The God who reveals. And the second point is the kingdom 
that God reveals, the kingdom that God reveals. Let's look at these, each, two, two, each of these two points. The God who reveals, as God revealed himself um, to the king of Babylon, he gave a few pointers. And this text shows us that he is not just any God. The God who revealed, reveals himself to the king of Babylon is not just a God out there among the many that King Babylon knew about in his portfolio of Babylonian gods. The, 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 the view of God that we have here is not just a general God. Throughout this chapter, there's specific descriptions. And if you look with me, look at three kind of pointers. The first one is in verse 28. It's a phrase that shows up a few times in this chapter. Verse 28, there is a God in heaven. Now look at verse 44. Daniel says, now when he interprets this dream to, to the king, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven. Do you hear that phrase, the God of heaven? This is the God who reveals himself now to the king of Babylon. But then look at verse 23. There is something else about another description. Daniel is praising God, and here's how Daniel describes this God who revealed the dream. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. Now, here's a description getting more specific about who this God of heaven is. He's also the God of Daniel's fathers. Now, this is referring to Israel's patriarchs, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the prophets. This is the God who has revealed himself throughout the Old Testament. And now, this God, this God is of heaven, is not just a God out there, the God of heaven, but he's also the God of Israel the God who revealed himself to the people of Israel. But then look how else God is described in this chapter. Look to verse 47, when now the king Nebuchadnezzar describes his God at the very end. He says, surely, he says to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And here the king makes it very personal. He's not just a God of heaven. He's not just a God of Israel's forefathers. He's Daniel's God. And remember, Daniel is an exile servant. He's a slave in Babylon. And now the king recognizes that this God of heaven is also the God of a slave. How amazing. That's why, dear friends, that's why when we think of the idea of God, we're not just talking about any definition of God. We're not just talking about a God that we define in our own ways, the way he, we like him to be. He's the God of heaven who appeared to Old Testament Israel and who appeared to Daniel. And then we'll see in the rest of the Bible, he'll be the God of, and the father of Jesus Christ. He's not just any God. But when, God, when this God reveals himself to King Babylon... The way he reveals himself in this chapter is a bit surprising. It takes us, takes us to, to take a back step and realize that he first causes frustration. When this God reveals himself, he first causes frustration, then humility, and then praise. That's how this God reveals himself to Babylon, 
to enter his king. Frustration, humility, and praise. God reveals uh, himself to Babylon's king by causing a crisis, a dream. But a dream that is very likely the king has forgotten. The text is not very, very specific if this was a test or the king actually forgot the dream. But I think it's appropriate for us to interpret and realize that it must have been forgotten because he was so troubled by it. He was so troubled by this dream. Now, we all dream dream dreams. And some of them we forget, others we don't. We remember them. And some of them trouble us, some of them don't. But it's rare that we would actually be troubled by a dream we forget. If you forgot it, it's past, it's gone. And yet the way God orchestrated the details of this dream is so that the, the king might forget it, and yet God left a sting in that dream. And the pain of that dream couldn't go away. There was something about that dream that had to be revealed. So King Nebuchadnezzar gets all his wise men of Babylon, the enchanters, the magicians, the astrologers. But when the king asks them to help interpret the dream, they're unable to reveal it. They're unable to interpret it. And this troubles the king so much that he is willing to decree their death for failing to reveal the dream and its interpretation. Notice what the astrologers say in verse 10. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This is the crisis that God creates. Now, you, you, know, you, you, you know that God could have revealed his dream to the king without creating this crisis, right? God could have given a dream and made it very, very clear what this dream was about. But God chooses not to do so. Why? To teach us something about the way God reveals himself. God gave that dream to the king, but in such a way that it was evident that no human being on earth had the ability to get it. A death decree was was given out for all the wise men in Babylon, and this death decree certainly pricked everyone's ears that the king was experiencing something that deserves our attention. What is it that the king experiences that actually would get all the wise men of Babylon killed? This is now becoming a national tragedy, a national crisis. But also, this crisis proved the inability of Babylon's wise men to show the king's dilemma. Friends, God frustrates the wisdom of the wise. God frustrates the wisdom of the wisest in Babylon. Friends, this is not a new concept in the Bible. If we keep reading the Scriptures, go to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, verses 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment uh, of the discerning I will thwart, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And the Apostle Paul, when he says it is written, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. 
The prophet Isaiah had written those words just a few years before the Babylonian exile. And the first time these words are actually fulfilled are in Babylon because God determined to frustrate the wisdom of the wisest in Babylon. Oh, friends, God's self-revelation frustrates the wisdom of man. That's the point. God's self-revelation frustrates the wisdom of man. And you'll say, why? If God wants to reveal himself, why does he first want to frustrate the wisdom of man? Here's why. To show us how empty our wisdom is. And to show us that we cannot approach God based on the wisdom that we have. We don't have it in us. That's why God frustrates the wisdom of the wise. We do not have the ability to understand the things of God unless God reveals himself to us. That's why the conclusion of the wise men of Babylon is such an important part of this, hist- of this story of chapter 2. There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the men. There's a second thing that we see about the way God reveals himself. It's humility. Humility in his servants as they approach God. Daniel gets the news that he's about to be killed, and he says, why? And he he finds out why. So he asks for time to, to, to do what? Do you remember? Why does he ask for time from the king? And remember, the king had told his wise men that he doesn't want to give them any time because they're going to just plan behind the scenes. And here's Daniel asking for time. Why? Because he needed time to pray. Now, friends, remember Daniel last week? He had just graduated from the king's academy as the wisest of all the wise men in Babylon. And even the Bible says that he was 10 times wiser than all the Chaldeans and that God had given him the ability to interpret dreams. He had all the spiritual gifts to get this dream. And what does he do? He asks for time so he can pray. The man who had all the gifts, who could do the job, still needs to humble himself before God. And what does he do? He doesn't just do it alone. He gets the word out to his friends and gets his friends to come and pray with him. And what do they do? What, do, what does Daniel ask him to do? Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. The man who had the gifts still needs to plead for mercy because even the wisdom he had did not come from him alone, came from God. And he has to approach God to show his dependence on God. Friends, our humility before God is shown by how we depend on God. And our dependence on God is shown through the practice of prayer. That's why we're called to pray. Prayer is not just a mechanism of cause and effect to try to get God to do something we want Him to do. Prayer is first and foremost an exposure of our dependence on God. The practice of prayer is one of the clearest outward signs of a humbled people, of a people convinced of their dependence on God. 
And Daniel enlists his friends to pray for this matter. Friends, one of the ways we can do this as a church is by growing in the practice of corporate prayer. Yes, we pray by ourselves. And we enlist the prayers of others, but gather together to pray. I'm so excited about next Sunday. We're going to have a church-wide Sunday school, but we're really we're going to have a church-wide prayer hour during the Sunday school hour. We're, have, we're going to have a little bit of structure to it, but we're going to ask you to gather together to pray together in a big group. Because prayer, when God's people pray, we show our dependence on God, and that's what we want to communicate, that everything that happens here at Park Hills Baptist Church happens in dependence on God, and we want to pray for that. But finally, um, God's self-revelation, when granted, leads to exhilarating praise. Look at what Daniel does when he finally gets a dream. He gets a dream, gets the interpretation. He gets out of bed right away and goes straight to the king in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, he doesn't do that. The first thing he does is stops and prays and praises God. He prayed at the beginning, and he pray- the first thing he does is pray at the end. Because when we realize that God reveals himself to us, we, the proper response is for us to respond to him in praise and thanksgiving to God for making his, himself known to us. Oh, friends, Daniel's praise describe, describes what this God is like. To him belong wisdom and might. He's sovereign over times and seasons, over kings of history. Now, remember, Daniel's still in exile. He's a slave boy. And yet, friends, Daniel still praises God for, God, for his sovereign work over kings, over human history. This dream that God revealed to Daniel for the king of Babylon encourages us not to be dismayed when the affairs of the world don't go as we would like. God is still in control. Cultivate in your mind a spirit of humility and a need for the Scriptures, a need for God's revelation. As much as the magicians and the astrologers, the wise men of Babylon, sought to discover the revelation of God on their own strength, even though their lives were threatened, they were not able to do it. And the point is this. God reveals himself on his own way. In his own way, we do not have the ability to discover God on our own. Friend, do you realize that you cannot know God on your own? And we would never know this God unless he revealed himself to us. We would never know about the origins of the world and how the world was created unless God revealed that to us. There was no microscope. There were no scientific uh, utensils to discover how the world came about. God simply said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We would not know about the true problem of our human nature unless God revealed it to us. We would never know about the solution that God provided for our rebellion unless God revealed it to us. We would never know how to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance unless God would reveal it to us. That's why the scripture is such a big deal for us. The scriptures are God's self-revelation to us. And then even when we get the scriptures and we start reading them, we cannot understand God and his word unless God illumines our minds with his spirit. That's why, dear friends, we need 
to approach God and His Word with a humble heart. We need to approach God and His Word with a desire and thanksgiving for the way He already revealed Himself to us. Friends, a, heart, a proud heart will never discover God. A proud heart will never discover God unless he humbles himself before God and asks for God's light to be given to him. This means that God's revelation of himself is a gift. It's a grand favor that God gives us. Don't treat God's self-revelation in his word with contempt. If you struggle with reading the Bible in your own quiet times, or if you struggle with reading the Bible with your own family members, could it be possible that you have lost sight of the fact that God's revelation of himself to us in the scriptures is a divine favor, a divine gift. Cultivate in your mind the spirit of humility and need for the scriptures. Don't treat God's word, God's revelation with a controlling manner. And you say, what, what do you mean by that? It's a kind of attitude that says, I can get to it later. It'll be there tomorrow. I can always do this at another time. That's a controlling attitude towards God's revelation. Friends, God, whenever he reveals himself to us, is a gift. Seek it with humility. Seek it with praise. But the second thing, the second emphasis that we notice about this passage is that the kingdom that God reveals has a major message to the kingdoms of the world. We looked at the God who reveals. He reveals himself. He reveals his mysteries in a way that he alone can do that, in a way that the wisdom of the world will never get it. But the second emphasis is the kingdom that God reveals. God's self-revelation, dear friends, is closely tied to God's revelation of his kingdom. You, you don't just get God without getting his kingdom. Does that make sense? If God is king, where is his kingdom? If we get a revelation of who God is and that he's above all things, then where is his reign and dominion? That's why in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, when God really starts to reveal himself, he's really revealing his kingdom. Now, the way God reveals his kingdom is quite interesting in this chapter because he reveals his kingdom in confrontation with the kingdoms of the world. And it's, it's fascinating. It, God gives the, the king this dream of a statue of four parts. Much ink has been spilled over trying to identify who exactly in, in, the, in, in human history are the four kingdoms. And that's somewhat misguided. Because what Daniel wants to show us here, what God wants to show us, is really the contrast between the statue that represents the human kingdoms and the rock and the stone. What's the big deal about this vision and its interpretation about a statue, as we've heard it, and, and this rock that falls from a, from a top of a mountain without any human hand? What's the big deal? Well, first of all, God tells us that his kingdom is not simply heaven, but it will confront the kingdoms of this earth. God's kingdom is not just something out there. It's something that wants to come here. That's the first thing we get. Second, God also tells us that the final outcome of this confrontation will be that the kingdoms of the earth will disappear. They will not become better. They will not evolve in an, into an ideal society. When the kingdom of God will arrive in its fullness, 
he, God, will replace the kingdoms of the earth. Another thing that we're, we're being told in this contrast is that God's kingdom shall never be destroyed. It has an unending future. And last but not least, God tells us that his kingdom shall never be left to another people. Now, that is an interesting description about this kingdom. Why is this important? Remember, God gives his vision to King Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel while Israel is in Babylon. God has given his people over to Babylon. That was the reality. And now this God is bragging, is revealing about his coming kingdom. And the one thing that God says about this kingdom is, it shall never be given to another people. It will be permanent. It will be done. It will replace all the human kingdoms. And, and one of the realities of, of doing so is that God's own people will never have any more rebellion, any more idolatries in their hearts. Why? Because God will clean out their hearts. God will clean out all the idols, all the other human kingdoms, and there will be only one reign, one dominion. Now look carefully how God, how God sets up this, this description, this, this contrast. There's a great contrast at the very beginning, at the very end of this, this imagery. At the very beginning, here's a big statue. Imagine it. Huge, humongous, gold, silver, bronze. And on the other side, you see a stone. Now, for those of you who have worked in, in sales and love to sell stuff, imagine that you are hired as an agent to sell either a stone or this rock that fell from a mountain or this humongous statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Now, tell me, which product would, would you have an easier time to sell? especially if it comes free. Which product? For sure, the statue is, is the, the, the alluring product, the alluring image. What can a stone do? What value is there in a stone? But friends, the book of Daniel tells us that the stone is a foreshadow of how Christ will usher in the kingdom. He will usher it in the most unexpected ways, in the most unintuitive ways. Nobody will think anything of that stone. It's through his death on the cross that Christ will usher in his kingdom. Remember Jesus, he's before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, what have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. That's how the kingdom came among us. At last, Jesus was crucified. It was through his death on the cross as a substitution for us that God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. That's how the kingdom of God penetrates the kingdoms of the earth without noticing, without any intuitive wisdom. I love the words of the song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior, Precious Redeemer and Friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue souls of men. That's why what, what Paul says about the message of the gospel is that the preaching of the cross of Christ is foolishness to the Greeks, but to us, it's the wisdom of God. It's a power of salvation. Oh, dear friends, here's the point. The contrasting 
of the statue and the rock is that the ushering of, the God, of God's kingdom is so unimpressive when compared to the statues of this kingdom, of this world, with the kingdoms of this world. It's nothing, there's nothing impressive about it. What's impressive about a cross? Nothing. Shame. Defeat. Suffering. And yet, contrasting the statue with the stone should not stop merely at the beginning. Look at how this contrast ends. The statue is not only destroyed, but it will vanish, it will disappear. Because even the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron have become as useless as the clay, crushed and blown away like chaff. They'll be all be taken away by the wind. Contrast this with the ending picture of the stone, which I don't know how, but just happens. Stone becomes a great mountain. Why a mountain? Think of the most stable picture on this earth. The one thing you cannot move. You can move trees, you can move rocks. You can't move a mountain. The mountain is this picture of, of God's enduring, eternal, undestructible reality, His dominion covering the entire earth, thus telling us that God's kingdom will be overwhelming, enduring, and final and supernatural. Friends, let me be very clear about this, what you should not understand from this picture. This ending picture of the stone and the statue does not mean that God hates the world and one day he will crush it out of hate. That's not what it means. Quite the opposite. Chapter 2 tells us that God is quite involved in the affairs of the world. Remember how Daniel described King Nebuchadnezzar's glory and might and authority over all the earth? He said, the God of heaven gave those to you. God of heaven gave those to you. God is presently involved in this world. He's presently involved in setting up the kingdoms of the earth and pulling them down. He's personally involved when election day comes to bring up presidents for America and to bring him down. There's nothing that happens outside of God's control, even when we may not like things the way things go. And yet, dear friends, God is saying to us that a day will come when his dominion will so replace the kingdoms of this earth to the point where there will be no rebellion, no sin that will challenge the dominion of Christ, the dominion of God. When every nation, when people of every nation, tongue and race, among whom God will dwell forever, will praise God, will show that He is truly King. Friend, I wonder if you know what it takes to become part of God's kingdom. I wonder if you know what it takes to become part of God's kingdom. You can't just apply for citizenship into this kingdom like I had to do when I came from Romania to this country. I had to apply to citizenship. For citizenship, it took five years for me to become a citizen. That was not, that's not the way you, you get into God's kingdom. It's not by application into citizenship. The only way to become a member of God's kingdom is to be born into it. Jesus said to Nicodemus, if anyone wants to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born from above, because that's where the kingdom comes from. You can't, you can't be born from here and still belong to that place that God is bringing here. And the way we, we are born into that kingdom is by believing the gospel, by hearing the gospel and responding to it. And you may say, what is the gospel? Perhaps you've heard this phrase quite a bit. If you've been a part of this church, you know you've heard the gospel. If you haven't heard it, I want to say it to you again. If you're visiting us this morning for the first time, I want to make sure you know the gospel. You hear what the gospel is. The gospel is a message 
that God created us in his image. We belong to him, and yet we rebelled against him, thus triggering upon us his wrath, his just wrath against our sin and rebellion. Because God cannot endure that a rebellious people will stand forever against him. God will, will bring his wrath against all those who have rebelled against him. But this is not the whole part of the story. The story of the gospel tells us that God is also merciful. He's full of love and he provided a way to pay for our rebellion so that we might be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. And the way God made that happen was by providing his own son, a lamb, who died on the cross, paying in our place so that we might be restored to God, so that our rebellion might be broken, our own nature might be broken, and now we might submit to God out of desire, out of a heart's desire and love. And those who acknowledge that they're sinners, rebellious against God, those who acknowledge that they are deserving God's wrath, and yet acknowledge that Christ has died for them, and turn away from their sin, turning their, their eyes in direction to Jesus, they will receive this new birth, this new nature. We cannot follow God on our own unless God gives to us a new nature. Friends, if you have not heard the message of, of, of the gospel, or perhaps you've heard it so many times, but you've never responded to it, there is a warning that Jesus gives to his own people, to the Pharisees. Jesus is speaking to those who wanted to, to pause and, and reject Jesus. And they were not sure they want to take him. And here's what Jesus said to them. Have you not heard? Have you not read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will, take, will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. That's what Daniel has been telling the king. And there might be here some who are still unconvinced or unsure they want to respond to this gospel. Friends, today, respond to it. Otherwise, there's this warning that this stone could crush you. We're not trying to intimidate you. We're just trying to warn you that this is coming. And Daniel said, this vision is true and trustworthy. It will happen. It's not yet fully happening. If you look at the world today, it seems like the world is in control. If you look at the world today, look at the gold, look at the bronze, look at the silver, look at the allurements of the statue. It still seems intact. But a day will come when God's kingdom will come in its fullness. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the prayer of all those who have received the gospel. We know that that kingdom is true. We know that its fulfillment is coming. That's why we pray it. And I pray that we would be encouraged. We would be strengthened that when we are allured by the statue of the kingdoms of the earth or when we, when, th when we think that it is stronger than the rock, don't despair, don't discourage. We pray our Lord's prayer in confidence that God's eternal kingdom will come. Friends, God has revealed himself and God has revealed his kingdom to us. Let us pray.
our most gracious God, the eternal God who has revealed your kingdom to us. We thank you that your prophecies, your promises are coming true. We thank you that through Christ, through his death on the cross, you have ushered in your kingdom. And we thank you that now through the church, you have made a visible display of your reign on earth through the people who proclaim your kingship in their lives. Oh Lord, we pray that this church and every church around Austin and every church around the world might truly be a display of the, of the dominion and reign of God over people here on earth. Father, may we truly be a true display of the gospel, of the power of your kingdom in our lives, so that people, when they see us, when they hear the word of the gospel, they might be impressed that God is truly among us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would draw people to yourself. We pray that you would bring people from the kingdom of darkness and transfer them into your kingdom of light. And we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.